So Psalm 84, for the director of music, according to the Gittith of the sons of Korah, a psalm, it says this. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our, look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Well, as we come to Psalm 84 today, let me invite you to join, join me in a word of prayer. I will sing of the, the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? And the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Lord, we do come here this morning and we, with the psalmist, we sing of your great love. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have uh, revealed yourself to us through your scripture, through your spirit, in the person of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we desire that today that our hearts would be captivated by him, that we would desire to be in your presence, Lord, that, that, the, that the affection that we see the psalmist describing in the psalm would be ours too. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and give us the discernment of your spirit now as we look at this passage to rightly understand it. So Lord, we desire to uh, honor your son Jesus, and we ask that you would help us now as we look at this passage. And all God's people said, amen. Every year, my wife and I go on vacation uh, to the cabin in Fergus Falls, as many of you have heard about before. And one of the things that we do while we're there, typically, is we always bring at least one puzzle with us. Anybody else like to do puzzles? Okay, like a handful of you. Okay, great. So uh, puzzles are great. We typically bring one or two with us, and this is sort of the only time during the year when we really actually find time to do puzzles. Um, and so we bring one with us. And there was one year where we brought a puzzle that, uh, I'll be honest, uh, Dina was not very excited about. I was very excited about it. 
and uh, she was right. <laughs> you know, puzzles, you're supposed to do it, and it's supposed to be an enjoyable experience. Well, this puzzle was not an enjoyable experience at all. Uh, so this is the puzzle that we brought with us. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a bad puzzle because of the subject matter. I mean, it, we got it at a thrift store, so that's why we chose this one. But what made it awful is that it's a photo mosaic puzzle. So there's this one picture that you see, and then if you zoom in really close, it's thousands of these little teeny tiny pictures that make up this bigger picture. And so as you can imagine, all of the different sort of strategy or rules that you would normally follow in doing a puzzle go right out the window. Because there is no, oh, well, look at how this piece perfectly matches up with the color on this piece. No, because they're all different, and it's totally irritating and aggravating, and it, uh, it really does test the strength of your marriage or your relationships. If you, do, if you do puzzles like this, you will come out realizing that your marriage is stronger than you thought or realizing we got some places to work on, okay? So it really puts you through the, uh, puts you through the fire. But we did this, and it was a pretty awful experience. We, we, we were stubborn enough to actually finish it instead of giving up, and then we uh, quickly gave it to somebody else, uh, and hopefully, they, hopefully their marriage survived um, the puzzle like ours did. Uh, but I bring this up just to sort of illustrate the, uh, the idea of a photo mosaic, right? Okay, we all know what a photo mosaic is. It's one picture that's made up of all these teeny tiny little pictures um, that all sort of pr produce one image. What we've been in uh, looking at the book of Psalms over the course of uh, these last few weeks in the summer leading up to fall kickoff, and as I, the more I think about the Psalms, the more I think that the Psalms are sort of like a photo mosaic puzzle, where the Psalms have sort of one intent behind them, uh, they are designed to reveal Christ to us. They are designed to shape the collective life and identity of God's people. That's what they're designed to do. And then you've got these 150 little psalms that each play a different, unique role in that. So some of the psalms, you read them and you're like, I can't identify with anything that this guy's saying. And some of them, you read it and you're like, oh, this guy understands my life. And so there's songs of praise and there's lament and there's confession and there's thanksgiving, and there's praise, and there's all these different kinds of psalms, and collectively they sort of uh, lead towards that one end of shaping God's people and revealing Christ to us. And so each psalm uh, plays a unique role in that, and even within those psalms there are certain lines or phrases or word pictures or images that also sort of create a, uh, contribute a unique vision of what's in the psalms. So the psalms are this collective picture uh, they're designed to shape the life and identity of God's people. Each psalm contributes something unique. And so what we're going to do today as we look at Psalm 84 is try and just uncover a little bit of the uniqueness that this psalm brings to the table and how it reveals Christ to us and how it shapes the life and identity of God's people. So what the psalm shows us today, what the psalm tells us is, number one, what should characterize God's people, and then it tells us the impact that God's people should have on the world around them, Okay. So that's where we're going to go, but let's just start where we begin in the beginning here. Start with the first point is this, that uh, this psalm shows us what should characterize God's people. Okay? What should characterize God's people according to what this psalm says, if we're shaped by it, what it will produce in us is an intense longing to be with God. An intense longing to be in God's presence. And you can hear that just in the language that is used in the psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So here this is something of a whole body experience where the psalmist is saying, everything about me, every fiber of my being aches to be 
in the presence of God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Verse 10, blessed is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And here you can, you can hear the psalmist sort of grasping at words to try and communicate his deep longing to be in God's presence and the value that being in God's presence brings. So he says, I would rather be in God's presence for one day than to be a thousand days anywhere else. There's a lot you can do in a thousand days. That's just under three years worth of time. And there's lots of, lots of things you could experience, lots of relationships, lots of pleasures, lots of travel or leisure. There's lots of things you could accomplish and experience in three years. And the psalmist is just grasping for words to say, I would rather spend one day in the presence of God than a thousand elsewhere. And so the collective picture that we see of the psalm here is the psalmist is communicating. The psalmist is just, he's consumed with a desire to be in God's presence. He's consumed with a desire to be in God's special presence. And you see the language throughout the psalm of God's dwelling place, the courts of the Lord, God's altar, his house. And all this language is describing the temple. This was the, the temple in the Old Testament was where the, the, the presence of God in a unique, special way came to dwell within the Holy of Holies in that temple. And the psalmist is longing to be in that place of being in the special presence of God. And the altar of God is a place where People would offer sacrifices. It's a place where they would come and they would come in a, in, a, in a posture of repentance. They would offer sacrifices. It's a place where forgiveness could be sought and readily received. And so the psalmist here is you can see just the, the intense longing and desire to be in God's special presence, to be in the place where forgiveness can be sought and found. This is the consuming desire of the psalmist that we see here in this psalm. But I think we got to just kind of pause here for a moment and just sort of recognize that we come to this psalm from, from a very different place than the psalm writer does. The experience of God's people in the Old Testament was very different than our experience. So their experience of God and his presence was just different than ours. So remember, there was one temple that was centrally located in Jerusalem. And of course, there were regular ongoing activities that were taking place at the temple. But the people of Israel were scattered all throughout the land. And most of the people did not come to the temple with any regularity. They would come once, maybe twice per year to come to the temple to be a part of some of these, uh, these bigger festivals or celebrations like Passover or the Festival of Tabernacles or, or things like this. And so we have to read this through the lens of a person who doesn't have the kind of access to God's presence that we enjoy today. So we just have to recognize that in contrast to their experience, in a part of the new covenant under Christ is that the presence of God no longer dwells in a building, but it dwells in a people. And so the presence of God dwells with every person who has been made alive in Jesus, who has been given new birth, who is alive to the things of God. And we have to recognize that we would be hard-pressed to go around this room and find one person who lives more than about a three-minute drive from a church of some kind. Okay, so we just have to recognize that we don't come at this idea of God's presence in the same way that they do, but this, this just helps you see the intense longing and desire of the psalmist, that this was not, a, this was not some trivial thing that they just did over and over and over again. This was a, a special thing, and we can see that in the language here. And so the psalmist, his desire is to, is to be in the special presence of God in the tabernacle, in the temple. So the psalmist, his heart aches to be with God, 
And the question that we should ask ourselves as we read this psalm and we hear the posture of the psalmist and we see the strong desire of the psalmist, we should ask ourselves the question, to what degree is that also true of us? The psalmist is filled, consumed with the desire to be in God's presence. To what degree is that also true of us? Maybe another way to ask the question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being off the charts, rivaling the desire of the psalmist, and 1 being, I haven't thought about it for months. If you were to do some honest self-reflection and sort of spiritual inventory, where would you find yourself on that scale? Now, just to be clear about this, uh, my goal in bringing this up is in no way to make anybody feel guilty. Okay? We all know that nobody experiences lasting, deep life transformation through feeling guilty. Okay? So my goal is not to make you feel guilty at all. <laughs> my goal is to get us to do some sort of uh, self-reflection and just to help us all name reality. Where would you find yourself on that spectrum? One to ten, ten being just like the psalmist, one being I don't even think about it, where would you find yourself in your desire to be in God's, to live in God's presence? Maybe another way to ask the question is to go about it like this, is to ask a, come at it from a different way and say, ask yourself, what are the specific practices that I have put in place in my life that enable me to be with God? What are the specific practices or life rhythms that I have in place that enable me to be present with God, that create space for that. Because here's the thing, we may say, someone may say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm like an eight, totally love to be in God's presence, it's awesome, I, I, you know, I, I long for it, I desire it, and then you say, okay, so what are the like specific things that you have built into your life in order to help you do that? And they say, well, it's just, it's just organic, which we all know means you don't have a plan and you don't do anything, <laughs> right? That's what that means. So, so you see, if, you would, if we would say, oh, I'm like an eight, but then there's nothing that I have in my life that I have set up that enables me to practice being in God's presence, should I really be claiming that my life is an eight? And the answer is, mm, maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe my perception of where my desire for God and his presence is looks different than what my actions betray. Because here's the thing, if we claim that, oh, you know, I'm an eight, but there's nothing that I actually do or put into place in order to practice God's presence, what it shows is, you know, I may desire to be in God's presence to some degree, but my desire to be with God, to be present with him, is not stronger than my desire to be on social media. That my desire to be with God is not stronger than my desire for entertainment whether that's YouTube or Netflix or whatever, you know, television, whatever, you know, video games, whatever that is. My desire to be with God is really not a whole lot, is not any stronger than my desire to achieve, to be, uh, to, to work, to, to be productive, to be accomplished. My desire to be with God is maybe not stronger than my desire to consume news and media content about what's going on in the world. It's not stronger than my desire for sports or hobbies or leisure or things like this. And so, again, this is, this is in no way to make anybody feel guilty. This is for us to just do some honest self-reflection and say, where do I actually find myself? How, how would my desire to be in the special presence of God, how would that compare with what I see in the psalm here? Now, I'll be honest with you, uh, this is something that I'm, I'm learning as I'm uh, thinking about this uh, more recently, is 
so I, I, I've been doing some sort of inventory on this. I'm a part of a group of guys that has been meeting together once a month and going through a book. And one of the, one of the chapters in this book is on the difference between being with God versus doing for God. And our doing for God being out of a deep sense of being with God, right? So instead of just, I do a bunch of stuff for God and I'm productive for him, but I'm not actually with him. That's not, that's not exactly what God has called us to. And so one of the things that I, I feel like I'm learning is that as I just take inventory of my life, there's a lot of input. There's a lot of, okay, well, I spend time in Scripture. And I listen to, uh, I listen to Scripture, audio, audio Bibles. I listen to podcasts. I, I take in a lot of information. And one of the things that I'm realizing is, oh, okay, so I, I, I've got all this stuff coming in. Where's the space in my life that I have built in for any kind of silence? For any kind of just sitting there saying, I'm just going to practice sitting here being with God with no agenda. Now, of course, that's one aspect of what it means to, to practice living in God's presence. And for, for you, maybe something completely different. You may say, okay, uh, I'm okay with having times of silence, but like, I, I just don't typically, I don't read a lot of scripture. I don't find myself praying often. And, and so you may find yourself looking at different aspects of your relationship with God saying, okay, maybe that's where I need to uh, put a little bit of effort and sort of dream about what could this look like for me to actually practice this and have a life that reflects something of what the psalm says. So this is, this is what the psalm tells us should characterize us as God's people. We ought to be characterized by a deep, all-consuming desire to be in the presence of God, to live in God's presence. But the second thing the psalm tells us is it tells us the impact that God's people should have on the world around them. Now, these two things are linked, okay? Because what we see here is as God's people live intent on being in his presence, that's what's going to create the impact in the world. So listen. Listen to verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. There's some debate about uh, these verses. Specifically, this place that's named the Valley of Baca. Uh, it, this is the only place in Scripture where this valley is actually named. Uh, and, and the word could mean, uh, but the, the Hebrew word Baca could mean uh, some sort of uh, very specific balsam tree, or it could mean tears. So let me just sort of summarize what I think this passage is saying. I think that the, the right sort of understanding of the word Baca here should be tears. And so we should read this. As they pass through the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. So notice the contrast. They're passing through the valley of tears, a place of sadness, a place of spiritual darkness, a place of weeping. And what happens? As God's people who are intent on being in his presence go through it, they turn it into a place of springs. And remember, for a largely agrarian society, a spring of water, this is the source of life and abundance and flourishing. Without water, you cannot survive. You cannot live. You cannot have any crops. You cannot have any animals. And so this is saying they turn this, this valley of tears, this place of darkness and despondency, they turn it, God's people, as they pass through it, it turns into something different than it is. And so this is the impact that God's people should have in the world around them. Wherever God's people go, flourishing should follow. Every single nook and cranny, every single place where God's people find themselves where we live, work, play, neighborhoods, all of that, every single place God's people find themselves, 
flourishing should follow. Life in abundance and joy should follow. And so I wanted to sort of uh, prod into this just uh, for a moment here with you and just have us think together about our church family. Because here's the thing. uh, We don't have control over anybody else. There's no point in us talking about sort of Christians vaguely. There's no sense in us talking about the church sort of vaguely. Uh, What we need to think about is just think specifically about Elmwood and the people who make up this church family. And let's just ask this question. In what specific ways is Elmwood a spring of fresh water in the desert of modern Western culture? And think about it more specifically with you as an individual, as somebody who's a, a, a part of this church family. Are the places where you live, work, and play, are they better because you're there? Are the places where you live, work, and play, are you like a spring of fresh water in the middle of a desert? That's what we are called to be. Christians ought to, those of us who are followers of Jesus, ought to bring a kind of equilibrium, ought to bring a kind of stability to our our culture, to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, because we're followers of Jesus and because we desire to be in God's presence. In the midst of a culture where it seems like everybody's mad about everything all the time and everybody complains about everything all the time and everybody seems to be triggered about everything and somebody's always upset and offended at everything, in the midst of a culture like that, are Christians a source of, are are, are we, as Elmwood Church, as our church family, are we a source of hope? Are we a source of reason and stability and truth and humility to listen and to understand and to love people well? Are we a source of joy? Are we a source of abundance and generosity in the places where we live, work, and play? This is what this text is pointing us to. As they pass through the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. And friends, this is the way we describe it here at Elmwood is we talk about gospel neighboring. There's a lot of different ways you could describe what this is, but, but gospel neighboring. We will be great neighbors we will invest in the places where we live. We will seek to make our neighborhoods and the places where we are a great place to live. And we will do so unashamedly and outspokenly in the name of Jesus. And so that's what the gospel neighboring thing is all about. is about following what this psalm shows us. Everywhere God's people go, flourishing ought to follow. And so the question is, is that true of us? Would, would, maybe just ask yourself this question. Would my neighbors say of me? Would my classmates, would my roommates, would my, uh, would my coworkers say of me, you know, he's kind of weird. And of course they'd say that about me, <laughs> but I'm talking about you here, okay? So ask yourself this question. You know, they're, they're a little bit strange and I, I really just can't buy into any of the stuff that they say about Jesus or the Bible, but you know what? They're good for our neighborhood. They're good neighbors. You know, they're good for our company. They're good for the culture of our company. They're great people. You know, do the people in our spheres of influence say that about us? Are we a stream of water? Are we a spring of water in the midst of a desert? That's what God calls us to be. So this is the impact we should have. Wherever God's people go, flourishing ought to follow. And so this psalm, as we've seen here today, this psalm clearly lays out what should characterize God's people, and that is that we should have an intense longing to be in the presence of God, to live in his presence, and we should have an impact in the world around us. 
wherever we go, flourishing ought to follow. But we just, we just have to make this really clear. This is not something we muster up. Okay, we don't just hear this and say, oh man, look at how far my life is from this. I just really need to, I just really got to just suck it up and try really hard to, to do this better. I got to try really hard to be a better neighbor. I got to try really hard to do this or do that. That's not what this psalm leads us to. And that will not produce any lasting life change. What this psalm shows us is that this is not something we muster up, but everything about us desiring to be in the presence of God is because we have first seen who he is. So everything about us desiring and longing to be in the presence of God and everything about us having this specific impact in the world that's all born out of, that's all a response to what we have already seen about who God is and what he's done for us. So the psalmist's desire is to be near to him, but his desire is to be near to God because God has already made himself near to the psalmist. He's, he's writing this poem about being in the temple. And if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that the temple, that the, this tabernacle thing that God created, this very ornate, beautiful building, is God's answer to the problem of the people who have been exiled from his presence. And so God has made a way through this tabernacle building, God has made a way for his presence to be near his people. And so the psalmist desires to be in God's presence as a response to a God who has already made himself known and already made himself near to the psalmist and to the people of Israel. And notice also, this is kind of stunning. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. So just notice these two things side by side. Number one, the psalmist longs to be in the presence of God. And then the specific language the psalmist uses to describe God is that he is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. He is the king, the Lord, the warrior God who fights for his people. And so notice that the psalmist here, he's not afraid of being in God's presence. God's enemies ought to be afraid of being in God's presence. But the psalmist here looks at it and says, Lord of hosts, the God of heaven's armies, I desire to be in your presence. Now think about this. If somebody has this amount of power that the, that the angels of heaven are at your disposal, if someone had that kind of power, you would likely be afraid of them, but you'd be afraid of them only if you didn't know how they were going to use that power. They may turn out to be a tyrant. That's someone who uses their power to abuse other people to take advantage of other people. But the psalmist here is not afraid of being in God's presence because God has already made himself known as a God who takes his power and uses it for the good and the advantage of his people. He's already led the people. He's already defeated his enemies, brought them out of slavery in Egypt, given them his very self, and now desires to, to, to reside among them in the tabernacle and this temple thing. So that he knows that this is the kind of God he is. He's the God who takes his power. Yes, he's all-powerful. Yes, he's the king over creation. And yet he desires to use that power for the good of his people. And so because of that, the psalmist is not afraid to want to be in God's presence. And in the same way, as we think about who God is and what he's like, we can, with the psalmist, rejoice that God uses his power for our good. And so we don't have to be afraid of being in his presence. And of course, this psalm leads us, as we, if we let it, it leads us forward to see Jesus. This is one of the things the book of Psalms, the sort of photo mosaic does, is that all of these psalms point us forward to the person and to the work of Jesus. And we see 
in Jesus, the clearest example of God desiring to come and be near his people. God himself took on human flesh. Jesus, the one who is, as, as the New Testament says, he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the king over creation. He's the sovereign, wise, all-powerful one. And yet he took on humanity to come and be in a world like ours. He came to be near to us. And so we see in Jesus the clearest example of God's desire to be near to us. He came, as Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself. He chose not to hold on to his divine status and all the privileges that came with that, but he took on the form of a servant and he suffered and he died. And then he was raised again from the dead. And this is the power of God at work to raise Jesus, to defeat sin, to defeat the evil one, to defeat darkness. And so the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus is seen in that God has used his power to accomplish our ultimate good. And so we we see that in the person of Jesus, that he's in in some ways the completion, the fulfillment of what this psalm talks about. This God who, he he uses his power for our good, and so we, we desire, we delight to be in his presence because we know that he's for us. We see that most clearly in the person of Jesus. And so this, seeing Jesus, seeing what he's done for us, this is what leads us to desire to be in God's presence. Okay, there's no guilt, there's no shame associated with this. This is what should lead us to desire to be in God's presence. This is the kind of God he is. The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. This is the kind of God he is. And as a result of seeing that, that should lead us to be the kind of people that say, I desire with every fiber of my being to be present with this kind of God. And through Jesus and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we get to, we get to have that. We have the down payment of the Spirit as a guarantee for what is to come, where we know that as Jesus returns, this world will be renewed, it'll be recreated, restored, and God will be present with his people the way that he was, he has always designed. And so we have that hope because of what Jesus has done. And so throughout life, as we go through different spheres of life and different seasons of life, we get to discern, okay, what does it look like for us to live in God's presence? And then there are some things that we get to do that are somewhat unique, like gathering here today as we come to the communion table. This is a unique way that we get to practice being in God's presence. As we celebrate Christ at the table, he is present with us. As we do this together as a church family, there's a unique experience as we sing praises to God. This is a unique experience that we get to have of God and his presence by being together. And so we get to celebrate that now. And so I invite you as we come to the communion table to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. 
We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess how often our desires are torn. We confess how often we choose other things over living in your presence. We confess how often we lose sight of or don't even think about the significance, the incredible reality is that we can be in your presence. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have lived in, lived thoughtlessly of you and your presence among us. In your mercy, Lord, we ask that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen.